it's like a truism in statistics that more data is better. So, you know, law of large numbers is a, a law for a reason. The more data you can apply, the better your answers ought to be if you have the ability to put that into a shape where reasonable inferences can be drawn and where dialogue can take place about what those inferences mean and imply about what actions ought to be taken. Welcome to the Esri in the Science of Wear weekly podcast. I'm Marcella Cavallero, Esri Manager of National Government Emerging Business, and I'll be your host for today. You just heard Andrew Schroeder, co-founder of We Robotics and director of research and analysis at Direct Relief, highlighting the power of data and analytics for humanitarian causes. In this interview, Schroeder describes how We Robotics uses drones, advanced imagery, and digital maps for social good. Listen to Esri Marketing Program's lead, Ed Loker, explore the potential of location technology and spatial analytics in bringing aid to the world. All right. Well, welcome, Andrew. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be with us. As someone who knows what data's true potential is, how can spatial analysis bring a different level of insight to people's lives, how they interact with, with data or, or their communities? One of the things I've consistently found is that spatial data in particular allows us to, you know, sort of think accurately about problems in the world in a way that often, you know, in organizations like my own uh, with both Direct Relief and my current uh, work with We Robotics have, have not always done, I think, making sure that we understand where disease occurrence is happening and how disease occurrence is related to... Um, health infrastructure, to poverty, to other demographic issues, to uh, trying to think ahead of the curve about uh, what is going to affect the most vulnerable people. Uh, it allows us to uh, target issues effectively. It allows us to think about uh, resource allocation in ways that we might not have done before. Um, it allows us to think in a really kind of, you know, integrated cross-functional way about um, how different issues fit together. Um, in we robotics, for instance, we you know you know we we work in applications of of uh, robotics for social good, uh, and this is something that we've focused on really intently in terms of making sure that we're not just looking at one set of issues. That you know when you when you make a map of a place, you fly a drone over an area, uh, or you use a satellite image, you're you're taking something that is um, composed of a lot of different issues. It can be used for helping to um, you know, understand how water flows in a place. It can understand settlement issues. It understands, uh, you know, when combined with other things, uh, human health patterns. So, so I think that that integrative tissue has been sort of crucial and, and then really getting accurate about how to respond and make sure you can fulfill the goodwill that people have when they want to uh, help the world. The speed and accuracy with which this technology has enabled response and, and to make better decision makers. Compare it a little bit to maybe five years ago. What would have been the process as opposed to now? What I just described was more than five years ago, actually. But um, the but I think one of the things that's changed is that that process has gotten even easier than it was before and has extended out into a lot of other areas of our work. We are now able to apply, you know, semi-autonomous to potentially autonomous imagery systems to being able to, to, to sort of rapidly retrieve high resolution data about an area that, you know, in, in disaster response is essential. We've been looking at 
how do you use the tools at, dis at our disposal now, aerial robots, to be able to get access to information in real time about road closures, about you know infrastructure damage, about flooding, where areas of standing water are, settlement counting, population counting, things like that. I mean, we would have relied on reporting, basically, you know, going and surveying places, uh, trying, you know, to use satellite imagery where we can, which often has some resolution problems or cloud cover, you know, you, you kind of do the best you can. Now, you know, you can do the same kinds of jobs using autonomous robotic systems. And if you can integrate that data in a way that I don't think the thought process has changed, but the tools may have changed. I think we can actually get to the point where that decision loop gets very fast. So disaster response is, is clearly a use case for this type of technology. But talk to me a little bit about using this technology just in everyday life. So, it, you know, what happens on Wednesday when they use this technology as opposed to when something horrible happens? Yeah, I think, I think that's a great question. And it's one we think about a lot, actually. And I think the important insight in the question is that often, I think, agencies that res uh, respond to disaster design for the emergency and not for the ordinary situations. But we're much more efficient, actually, if you do it the other way, where you build for things that are being used all the time that then get applied in an intensified or accelerated way during emergencies. As one example, this is actually the origin of We Robotics. We were trying to, you know, this is before the organization existed, respond to the Nepal earthquake. And we discovered that it was almost impossible to um, introduce technology in an efficient way during the disaster. So we decided that it was important to have local institutions that could lead that, that were already there, that were able to speak the language, that knew the regulations and uh, were already doing projects. That's been our, our focus going forward is, is through that resiliency uh, impulse. But since then, you know, we've worked with smallholder farmers around, say, applying aerial imagery, uh, whether that's space-based or, or purely drone-based, to increasing livelihoods, um, improving understanding of uh, hydrology, how, how water moves around their fields, started to help looking at ways to apply multispectral imagery to uh, smallholder plots. It's a large, there's a business model question there in terms of how to wrap up large amounts of parcels into, you know, a, a data set that could provide answers rather than just data back to farmers. One thing that happens on a constant basis is how do you improve economic productivity? I think um, looking at, at a land rights about how cities are organized, particularly informal settlements in the global south, is one of the really key issues. I mean, informal settlements change constantly. What happens in Dar es Salaam, you know, in Tanzania, for instance, uh, on, on, you know, one month may not really be the same. Six months later, uh, people move their settlements uh, on a regular basis. And the ability to constantly image an area uh, helps to make sure that we understand those dynamics as we attempt to open up uh, property rights and ownership for people um, in those areas, um, which is then integrated into, you know, things like trying to provide financial services for the poor and, and again, improve, improve livelihoods. So 
that also has implications for city planning and for service delivery and, and, and that kind of stuff. And then in the event of disaster, if those processes are already working, we should be much more efficient. Uh, we should have uh, already workflows, regulations, relationships, um, you know, ways of, of organizing activity in place, you know, pre-event uh, that should make the disaster response much more effective. And, and that ought to kind of fulfill the, what I was talking about earlier in the Nepal example, where you don't want to just import technology. You want to make sure that the technology and the data and then all of that surrounding tissue of relationships is in place so that in the first 24 hours, you're already able to respond. I was super impressed in, in checking out the We Robotics site and the videos that you have there about the flying labs and the, the Tanzanian. And I want to ask you a question about what I saw in one of those videos. There was a scene where you're launching the drone and there's a group of kids and they're literally quivering with excitement and they can't wait for that drone to, to lift off. Are you finding as you're importing this technology into these communities, what's the assimilation like? Is it welcomed with open arm? Is there resistance and is it generational? How are you finding the, the interaction with the communities at that level? I think the communities everywhere that we work uh, have been overwhelmingly positive in their response and that the younger you get, the more uh, positive it is. I mean, I was in uh, Liberia, rural Liberia, about six months ago, and I uh, was in part mapping some areas for community health workers. So I was, you know, near a, a health clinic that had some settlements near it. We, I, I launched the drone, and within maybe three to five minutes, I was surrounded by probably 75 to eight kids uh, who saw it in the air and ran over to find out what was going on. And then their parents came and we started talking. Uh, we uh, showed them the images that were taken of their area. Um, and we talked about what they could see in terms of the layout of their village. And they were just fascinated and, and enthusiastic about pretty much everything we were, we were doing, including uh, the idea of improving how community health workers with better maps could access those areas in new ways. And, you know, I think that's something that has been universal, actually. It's not confined to Africa, Nepal, Peru, Panama. Everywhere I've, I've been to use this has been overwhelmingly positively received. When, when you bring this technology to these communities, how much of it is empowering people to do this for themselves? And how much of it is them giving back in the other direction to help you guys be better at what you do? Yeah, I think it's all of the above kind of all the time. The, the flying labs, which uh, are the sort of core of what We Robotics tries to accomplish, uh, which are localized innovation labs, um, are, you know, in part uh, bringing technology in, right? Sometimes this is expensive. You know, there's, uh, you know, it may not always be locally available. So there are international relationships that are required to uh, open up access to technology. That's true on the software side too, not just on the hardware side. Uh, we find local 
organizations and experts that, uh, you know, maybe universities that are nearby, maybe NGOs that are working in the area that actually have people that are skilled enough that they can kind of pick this stuff up relatively quickly. And then you get what you're talking about, which is uh, feedback from the community level, people telling you, um, you know, combining local knowledge with imagery. When there was a project we did in Nepal uh, about eight months after the earthquake happened, where uh, we went out to Panga, Nepal, which is outside of Kathmandu by about two hours, uh, and worked with the community disaster response teams to image the area and uh, begin reconstruction planning with them. And you know, hold some uh, workshops basically on how that process would work. And the community, once we printed out the maps and kind of, you know, showed them what the imagery, they began tagging those maps. They began uh, looking at, you know, areas uh, that we would not have known from the imagery were more significant than others, uh, put their priorities in place, uh, began talking to us about areas that we did not actually image, places that we had missed that we ought to go back and fix and, and sort of include in those maps. And that dialogue, I think, became the heart of not just data collection, but technology-based resilience as a social process, which is really what we want to get to. And that example has then been something that we've learned from and have applied to a number of other situations around the world. So that, that ability to kind of think across widely dispersed geographic territories and to build a learning network um, so that uh, you have communities informing us, us informing communities, and then uh, across the world, um, communities informing each other um, is what I think is going to get us to the point where um, automated systems in general are able to build from the bottom up throughout the poorest parts of the world. Um, and we're going to be able to, you know, accumulate knowledge and wealth from the bottom uh, and inform how future planning is going to take place on, in all different sectors. I tell you, I'd be surprised if, if just from watching literally that three minute video, you didn't inspire two or three of those kids to want to do something like that. Absolutely. I'll give you one very concrete example of that, that uh, workshop I told you about in Panga. There was a young engineering student uh, who was at that workshop, who attended it, learned how to do some more stuff, um, got access to technology through that workshop. He turned around and became our lab director in Nepal um, and has since uh, helped to build multiple projects in different parts of the country. He's built his own relationships with uh, the land survey office and with the, the home ministry in Nepal and is now considered one of the really leading figures in the country for uh, you know, the application of robotics technology to social good. But but he uh, was able to get a sense that he can be a leader in the field. And there's just thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people all over the world that in that position, you know, given the ability to, to see that there's a horizon of activity that they're capable of, but may not have had access to before, are ready to, to take up positions of leadership. And I think it would be one of the really top level goals for us to make sure that we could see more and more of those leaders emerging all over the world. What do companies have to gain by participating in this, in this conversation? I think companies have a, have a lot to gain from it. Um, at the international level, we partner with a number of companies. Esri is one of them, DJI, Sensefly, others that are in the robotics uh, space, uh, and a number of others. 
you know, it depends on the company, but I think one of the things that companies gain from that is insight into how their products are used in these kinds of situations. Um, use cases that, that they didn't actually think of, ways to derive insight from the application of their products in those situations. Um, but where if you you know, work in tough environments, you learn how things uh, work, whether that's the failure rates of, of, a, of a piece of, of robotics technology or whether that's data that helps to solve a social problem that you might not have actually pursued otherwise, you, you gain a tremendous amount of insight. So that's one of the things that we've definitely tried to take into account in the design of the network is actually helping to feed insight um, about bottom-up innovation back to the people that are helping us to uh, transfer technology and, and, and supply resources. You know, I think we think about that in terms of companies that are based in those areas as well. So one of the goals of We Robotics is actually to incentivize the creation of new enterprises at the local level. Um, I think what, what's really going to be the sustainable solution for those areas long-term is, is the formation of enterprises that can lead the sales of new technology, that can, that can start up uh, new drones as a service businesses, that can apply robotics to things like water monitoring uh, and, and can really own that locally. So those companies have a tremendous amount to gain from this kind of process. They, they learn their communities, they learn demand. What do people really need and want in those areas? Um, how can they interface with the international community as, as a source of potential demand revenue as well? I mean, USAID, you know, the Gates Foundation, others, they have project needs in those areas. I think that can be efficiently supplied from the ground up if we have enterprises that are already there and we can help to build those relationships where they don't yet exist. So the companies can have, you can have capital formation from below and that can help build better insight uh, at the international level. You know, that's a tall order, but I think the, the building blocks are there to make that happen. Um, so you talk a lot about robotics. What other technology on the horizon do you see has the potential to change fundamentally how communities, whether they're distressed or not, deal with some of the challenges that we're facing? The big one is machine learning and, and uh, other kinds of, uh, you know, sort of data processing tools uh, that are starting to become uh, not just more widely available, but easier to use, kind of baked into the experience of using other kinds of tools that people are familiar with. Um, they sound very, I mean, it, artificial intelligence and machine learning sound very off-putting and futuristic and in, in overly futuristic in some ways. And they have long histories of overhype as well. But you're starting to get to the point now where uh, the ability to utilize, say, uh, automation of feature detection in images. Um, can dramatically expand what you're able to do with those images. To go back to the emergency response stuff, I mean, if you accumulate a large number of images of, a, of an area that's been affected, it, they're not that valuable unless you can extract useful information from the pictures. People can do that extraction, but, you know, often slowly and with error that needs to be corrected. There will always be a role for people to engage with the interpretation of the results and to drive the priorities, but assisted by 
algorithms that can help to extract that information faster also then speeds up um, the drive, you know, the allocation of resources based on prioritization. It, it speeds up the interpretation process. So I think the next wave of what we're thinking about in that space is how to be able to, uh, you know, take the same model I just described to you about um, bottom-up technology growth and apply it to things like integration of automated feature detection, machine learning, and other processes that can speed up that interpretation loop. A phrase you used earlier was to be accurate about the problems that you're you're tackling. So using this machine learning to act, to to provide accuracy to actually what is the the issue at hand? Absolutely, it's like a truism in statistics that more data is better. So you know, law of large numbers is a, a law for a reason. The more data you can apply, the better your answers ought to be if you have the ability. Uh, to put that into a shape where reasonable inferences can be drawn um, and where dialogue can take place about what those inferences mean and imply about what actions ought to be taken. So imagery produced rapidly and regularly is a huge data problem. And if we can make that easier for people to engage with, uh, we can improve the kinds of decisions that people make, the, the, we can improve the discussions that people have um, and get to the really meaningful parts faster, I think. Are there real problems or issues that affect a large number of communities that are just crying out for the application of this technology approach that we could really alleviate a lot of suffering or improve the condition of hundreds of thousands or millions of people? It's one of the things that is hardest about being poor throughout the world is that you're also in the areas that are most vulnerable to extreme events. You know, you live in communities that are flood deltas, or you live in dense settlements in areas of rising ocean waters. The world is going to continue to get more populated. It's going to continue to get more dense, and it's still going to be quite poor. Those problems are not going to magically change on their own. Um, but we have an increasing ability to understand, design, and manage, and to make sure that that happens from the bottom up. Uh, I want to thank you very much for your time today, for coming in and speaking with us. And we really appreciate your insight and these inspirational stories you shared. Thanks. It's, it's been a real pleasure to uh, talk about this with you. And, and I really have to thank Esri for their support of We Robotics. Uh, Esri's been a, a really key partner of ours and for my work at Direct Relief, which I continue to also do. And, and I've learned a lot about, the partner, about these ideas from the partnership with, with Esri. So I, I really thank you guys as well. Thanks for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. And thanks to Andrew Schroeder for illuminating how location intelligence contributes to humanitarian efforts, social innovation, and economic development. To learn more about the power of advanced location technology, download our ebook, Making Sense of Digital Transformation, at esri.com forward slash wear. To keep current with new interviews, visit our podcast page at esri.com forward slash podcast.